You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Welcome, everyone. So this is Chris McIntosh speaking to you here. We've got lots going on. What I wanted to do today was to cover off some of the key areas that I'm working on that I'm paying a lot of attention to and try as best as I can to synthesize some of those for you. While it's foolhardy to think one can precisely time market tops and bottoms, what we can see are extremes at either end of the risk curve. And this is the time, I believe, for us to wake up and pay attention, to look for cracks and potential cracks in the existing system and to position oneself accordingly first for protection and then for profit. This is especially so in a market distorted by unprecedented and increasingly aggressive monetary policy initiatives by central banks. At some point, you know, all of this monetary policy and insane sort of initiatives, at some point, market turns around and says, you know what, enough is enough. And while I've been keenly focused on many of the pieces of this particular puzzle, a few months back, I moved aggressively towards bolstering my own portfolio and focusing 100% of my attention on the global macro landscape for the reasons which I've been discussing on the blog for some time now, and some of which I'm going to cover briefly today. I've had multiple conversations with money managers all over the world. One of the things that has struck me is that there's a lot of 20-something-year-olds in a suit who essentially believe that you buy the dip in the market. And for those guys, indexing works. For the last few years, they've been doing quite well. And I think that certainly Brexit is a wake-up call for them. Um, What is interesting is that easily the majority of them believe that this this is a dip in the market and one which you buy. Now, from a trading perspective, that's exactly what I've been doing. But there's a lot more to it. And that's not how majority of them tend to view it. The, should I say, the older money or the smarter money, um, many of the people that I've interviewed on on the podcast or that I've referenced to in discussions on the blog, believe somewhat differently. So let me explain some of the context behind that. Some 14 years ago, I was working at JP Morgan and I worked on a project with a team called the Six Sigma team. These guys, you know, as you can imagine, built risk models. And the Six Sigma simply referenced six standard deviations from the mean, with the idea being that if the bank could withstand six standard deviations from the mean in any particular market event, uh, they were pretty robust and um, the bank was okay with that. Now, for some context, a black swan event in statistical terms is a 20 sigma move where the odds against such a move happening are about 10 to the 50th power. So to put that in context, Black Monday, where the US stock market crashed 25% on October the 19th, 1987, was a 20 sigma move. And Black Thursday, where the US stock market crashed 13% in 1929, which was actually an early warning for the Great Depression, was a 10 sigma event. Now, these are clearly the kind of events that are not meant to take place with any level of frequency. The Swiss franc, if you'll remember back in January of 2015, when the Swiss franc 
peg broke, the SMI, which is the Swiss market index, was down some 14.3% at one point. It only recovered late in the day by another 10%. But that was the single worst day in the history of that stock market. It was a 10 sigma event. Then just recently with Brexit, Sterling had a 12 sigma move in the day. Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, how is it that we're getting within the space of months, months, not years, months, market gyrations that are statistically impossible? And I think we all inherently know the answer to that, and that lies with central banks' incredible manipulation of the marketplace and the incredible manipulation of the cost of risk. Now, this is where you, as an independent money manager, and you know, quite frankly myself as you know, managing my own money, have a huge advantage over the establishment. Now, just to give you some sort of context, and many of you who are listening to this are hedge fund managers and money managers, um, family officers yourselves, but, and so you'll, you'll, um, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say that, uh, you know, in money management, to a certain extent, independent thought isn't allowed. We as an individual managing your own money um, have that critical edge in the market when I say you, that independent thought is not allowed, what I'm referencing to is the fact that hedge funds report their earnings um, quarterly. And at the end of those reports, their limited partners look at them and decide um, what they think about it. Uh, hedge funds that go through three or four quarters of um, declining or poor returns face real risk of redemptions. Um, the last thing that any asset manager would want. And what that tends to do is has this loop effect in that asset managers can tend to be very short-term focused in order to make sure that their next quarter's earnings are positive or at least not as negative. You and I as individuals managing our own money don't have to, don't have to be constrained by such myopic short-term thinking. And that I think is is important to understand, given the environment that we're in now, it's even more so important. So let me quickly um, delve into the topic that you know is um, being beaten to death to a certain extent is Brexit, and not so much Brexit, but the the, the knock on effects of that. I think what is what we are absolutely going to see is a groundswell of sentiment change with both right and left wing campaigning for exit in e, in the EU. And I think they'll do this because it's gaining popularity. And remember, politicians are nothing more than political hookers. If they see the sentiment shift, they will shift their rhetoric accordingly. You can bet your bottom dollar on that. If you're a reader of the blog for any length of time, you'll know full well that I believe that this is a vote against the establishment much more than it is anything else. We're seeing this globally in the developed world. Part of the reason why I'll just quickly delve into why that is the case is the mispricing of these assets has weakened the middle class when you have a middle class that is the vast majority the middle class remember there are people who have stuff and people who have stuff don't want to lose that stuff and so they don't want to upset the apple cart too much if things if they're not that happy with things they might vote for some change but they vote for change which is not significant. They're not voting for revolutionary change. They vote for a 
a small change that will, you know, better their life in some way, shape or form. They don't vote for revolutionary change. But when you have people who don't really have stuff, when you have people who don't have um, or have lost stuff, when you have a, essentially a declining middle class, then you get uh, that shift taking place. And we're seeing that in Europe. We're seeing it in the US where the middle class over the last 20-odd years has declined from roughly 60%, 50-odd percent. And then we have the same thing in, in Britain. And so that's important to understand. So back to some of the knock-on effects Yeah, That vote to leave, it was actually a dual vote. You see, it was a vote to tell Brussels to get knotted and it was at the same time a vote to the Conservative Party to say, out with you too. Now, if the Conservative Party had been pro-Brexit, this may have been different, but given the incredible energy and propaganda that was thrown at the British public, the knock-on effects of this are that the existing leadership is out. And if you think about what a democracy is meant to be, really what the um, Conservative Party should have done was say, look, folks, it's up to you. Um, and, you know, here's the pros and here's the cons. And, you know, you decide. But they didn't do that. They campaigned incredibly hard to to get the populace to, to vote remain, which clearly didn't work. And so as such, it was... Inevitable that um, that there needs to be stepping down from that. Now, for any Americans listening, this is important as we watch the U.S. leadership stance towards Brexit. On the establishment side, um, we had Obama coming out, essentially campaigning for um, for Britons to remain, and Trump saying quite the opposite. Now, it's interesting to note additionally that. The rating agencies downgraded Britain's debt just after the vote. Now realize that the rating agencies are part of the establishment. Quite frankly, the, the UK should, you know, they should never have been rated as AAA going into Brexit. And you now, quite frankly, downgrading them after the fact is just simply a consequence of the establishment-driven world that I believe we're slowly, surely moving away from. I think this is one of the more important concepts to get your head around is that this idea that the zeitgeist is changing and it no longer automatically runs with the status quo. Quite literally anything can and will happen. That means a lot more volatility and it, it you know, it quite frankly means a lot of more trading opportunities. At the political level, this is, you know, this is the Bernie Sanders and the Donald Trump vote. It means that in Europe, uh, particularly in France and Germany next year, we're going to see some sort of um, change in government. I think that you know we will get a change in government, um, and even if the political parties don't change, I do think that what we're going to see is that some of these very controversial topics, like do we stay in the EU, do we use the euro, are going to they're going to be forced onto the political stage, front and center. Um, certainly, if I was a politician in Europe and I was looking to get elected. Um, that would be a topic that I would um, I would bring up, and that's going to take place. So, if you think about Europe and you think about all these twenty eight different countries, I I just I don't think that the risk inherent in that destabilization of of the EU and of the euro 
is priced into the market right now. Um, everybody's kind of focusing on sterling and nobody's really focusing on the euro. So I think that's where, for me, a lot of opportunity lies. Um, European sovereign bond markets are really, really mispriced, I believe, right now. I spoke about this on the blog recently. Um, the fact that essentially you can get positive carry by shorting European debt and then um, at the same time going long US debt uh, just doesn't make any sense to me, but it's there and it's an opportunity. Um, that, I believe, will converge. I also believe that US bonds will come down. I think that um, I think it's possible you see the 10-year at 1%. Um, I know that many people can't envisage that. But uh, you know everything is relative. So when you think about how human beings make a decision, do you buy this house or the house next door sort of thing? Typically, what we need to do is we need to get some context around you know buying a house, buying a car. Nobody goes out and buys a car because it's the first car that they've seen. They want to see what other cars in that category sell for or what they look like. Um, everything tends to be relative and so then we make our decisions based on that relativity so if you think around if you look around the world at sovereign debt markets on a relative basis as terrible as the u.s fiscal situation is it is a much much better proposition than that in europe so um that's what i'm looking at right now um and you know, coming back to Brexit and, you know, how will Britain be affected on this? I think what needs to be remembered is that, you know, the reason that London challenges New York as a financial capital and not Paris or Berlin or Frankfurt is because the Brits literally created the common law system. They created banking. And, you know, so long as London remains friendly to capital and they will be increasingly incentivized, I believe, to do so, as long as this is the case, then London actually stands to be potentially a net beneficiary of the woes that Europe is experiencing and will continue to experience. So let me, you know, I was explaining this to a friend who's was, you know, struggling to understand, you know, what this all meant. And I explained it like this. I said, imagine for a minute that there were 10 of us with a game plan to, you know, build a small apartment building. And in order to finance, you know, in order to, fund this apartment building, we all agree that we're going to put up our own homes as collateral. Now, for you know, ease of numbers, let's just say that all 10 of us have got a home that's worth a million dollars, which is unencumbered. Now, let's further assume that you and I, listener, uh, just two of us out of the 10, decide after much thought that, you know what, we don't quite like the structure of this thing, and we pull out and tell the other guys, sorry, you know, this is just this is not for us, and, and you know we're 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 pulling out we're pulling out of this deal, but you guys go ahead. Tell me, you know, where do you think the risk lies? Where where does the risk fall in that? Is it with you and I, the two guys who pulled out when they saw trouble ahead, or you know, is it with the eight who have suddenly lost twenty percent of the collateral? Are they in worse shape? And so that's you know that's essentially how I look at Europe. Europe has lost collateral and has lost psychological clout or political power. There's, um, and, and, you know, again, that's not priced into the market at this point in time. The other thing that I'm going to briefly cover, um, which is right on the other side of the planet, and we've 
I've spoken about it plenty of times on the on the blog, is China. Um, long-term readers will remember that back in late 2014, um, we wrote a number of pieces about it. We got short the renminbi versus the dollar, um, and um, you know our thesis at the time, you know, began with uh, where I was looking at the um, China's interbank lending market, and um, Brad, who um, tends to look at the trading side of things, you know, mentioned to me, "Look, there's this huge asymmetry in this um, in this market, and you know, putting the turn to." You know, putting a number of things together, we felt that there was a you know there was a significant opportunity or significant potential for problems in China's credit markets, which would you know when you kind of look at all the pieces that you know go into that and and what the ultimate ramifications were, we believed that there was this potential um, or probability, high probability. That the renminbi would need to be devalued. That was back when I was trading around six, six, eleven, six, twelve, and today we're at six sixty-seven. And so we've had a fairly, you know, fairly strong move. And unfortunately, the asymmetry that existed back in December of twenty fourteen is not there to the same extent any longer. Mm-hmm. That said, there is far from a widespread market expectation that. The China's renminbi is going to devalue a whole lot more, and certainly the credit problems in China are extreme. You know, our NPLs are up forty percent this year alone, and this is you know, this looks like it's happening now. The devaluations that we've seen so far, um, we believe, are just the encore. We expect the PBOC to slash reserve requirements for the banks. Interest rates in China will be slashed, uh, but there's going to be a penalty to be paid for that. And we believe they'll be forced to substantially devalue the yuan. So that's that's an area that we're um, still focused on. The other thing to you know um, to think about is a significant devaluation in the yuan will be destabilizing globally. However, it's not going to be the end of the world, and China's not going to go away. You know, there's a lot of readers who who you know mentioned to me, oh look, I you know I don't really like shorting, and I don't really understand how to do all this stuff, and I think. You know the, the one of the important things to think about is to get your head around the fact that coming out of this, I think it's you know mentally preparing yourself for this event, even if you're not going to trade it and you're not going to participate in it. Coming out of it is what I believe will be you know one of the best buying opportunities of a lifetime. Buying China, which is not going away. And will surely number, become number one spot on the world's largest economy, crisis or not, is a very compelling and exciting opportunity. Most will be too afraid to see it for the opportunity that it is, but it's simply a clearing of the excess in the credit system and a repricing of risk. Now we'll have to watch how that plays out, or if it plays out. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe uh, maybe there's something that I'm missing here. But if that's the case, then it's you know preparing yourself ahead of the time for that eventuality and and you know um, mentally getting prepared that you would uh, be on the buy side is something that you rest assured 90% of the market's not going to be doing to be clear you know china has got you know, brexit is not to blame for china these are you know 
Much of these things that I've been discussing today have been percolating for some time, and they're going to happen regardless. Brexit is, you know, it's another piece of the puzzle, but it's certainly a significant one. If you think about the butterfly effect, like Brexit, you know, has the, the butterfly effect potential. I think of it like this. If you were sitting on the sofa, you know, being a slovenly pig, scoffing crisps, drinking beer, watching TV, and you happen to watch a program with a bunch of gym junkies who are, you know, fighting fit, and you sit there and you think to yourself, oh, you know, that should be me, and you get up off the sofa and you head out to the gym, you needed that inspiration, you needed that kick in the butt. Now, that is what Brexit has the potential to do. It's that kick in the pants that can take place globally and have a knock-on effect. Um, it's why you know control of the media and propaganda has been such a powerful tool. And what's interesting to me is that literally just about 10 hours ago, across my newsfeed came the fact that Matteo Renzi, the Italian Prime Minister, is determined to intervene with public funds to bail out the Italian banking system. Now, this is in contravention of Brussels' rules that creditors, rather than taxpayers, must fund bank rescues. And they've warned Italy not to defy those rules. And interestingly, Italy retorted with, and I quote, what was it? We are willing to do whatever is necessary to defend the banks. And they don't rule out the ability to act unilaterally. Something to that effect. Interesting, this comes just a week after Angela Merkel rebuffed a request, a formal request from Italy, to suspend those very rules. So essentially, Italy said, "Hey guys, you know we got a problem here. We need to we need to address this problem. Can you you know suspend those rules?" And Brussels Tenor said, "No, we're not going to do that." When interviewed and questioned about Italy's ignoring of the rules, Mr. Renzi's response was a bristling, "I will not." be lectured by the school teacher, of course the school teacher being Merkel. And so you can see how, you know, essentially Matteo Renzi has been emboldened to take the to the proverbial gym to get off his butt. And you know, he's seen seen it take place in Britain. He's like, well, you know, I can do that too. Um, so that's you know, that's really important. And I think what we well, there's two ways that the EU bureaucracy can deal with this. They can try and clamp down but it's like, you know, the harder they climb down, the easier it will be for member states to just say, I'm out. This doesn't make any sense to me. We're going we're gonna to leave. And so I think there'll be, a, a you know, um, an easing and um, there will be concessions made um, to, to try and make things better for European sovereign states. But at the end of the day, I, I, I don't see how, you know, a massive massive bureaucracy can ever accomplish um, that over the long term now the question is how all of this affects asset classes because this is a this is a significant risk off move and we're seeing it in equity markets in bond markets and we're going to see it in um, in private capital uh, anything that's not liquid it's interesting to see how you know bitcoin has reacted and you know some of these sort of esoteric cryptocurrencies now remember those are liquid that's it's you know it's very liquid trades, as liquid as currencies. Um, I mean, you can trade Bitcoin, you know, just as easily as you can trade some, you know, second and third tier currencies. So, um, I, you know, I kind of put that up in the currency block. And certainly if we get an ETF in that space, then we'll see institutional money moving into that as well. 
Um, but you know, Bitcoin in itself is 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 a topic that I'll probably cover a different day. In terms of other asset classes, one that I've been you know devoting quite a bit of time to in the last three four years from the company that I founded co-founded was um, Venture Capital, and you know for the last year over a year probably eighteen months um, I've been campaigning really really hard to my portfolio companies and trying to scale back on the number of new investments made. But campaigning on a, you know, to get those companies to raise as much cash as, as they could. And this is going back 18 odd months. Some did, you know, some didn't. Um, and I think that that window is pretty much now closed. Many won't, won't realize it, but going forward, funding private companies is going to be much, much more difficult. Again, maybe I'm wrong on this. I don't think so. Early indications are that there's just, there's just a drying up of, of interest and liquidity in this space. Um, and that was coming. You know, I've written blog posts about it, one on um, you know, unicorns. And um, you know, it's culminated in me um, ceasing a business which was, um, was paying me well because I just felt it's the wrong thing to do. And, um, and, and you know, clients need to understand that you know, position sizing and, and risk allocation are really, really important. And this global macro landscape is one which is um, it's it's really really important to understand. And so, so the bottom line is this is a trading environment. Um, it's easily the most pure macro trading environment I think I've ever seen. Um, the opportunities mentioned the euro before. You know, shorting the euro, it's finished. If I was going to make a trade and go to the beach for the next ten years, it'd be you know long gold, short euro, possibly long gold, short yen. Um, which I'll talk about at another point. The thing is, we're seeing this elimination or this lack of trust creep into the market. And the thing with trust is, it's like you know, it's like virginity. You only lose it once. Once trust in central bankers is lost, it's going to cascade through markets with a force that'll make 2008 look like a speed bump on the way to a concrete barrier. And what the central bankers of the world have done is make asset owners much richer, to make the average man much poorer and you know owning anything from real estate to equities and at the far end of the curve private equity um, that's made people richer so I think that one of the knock-on effects of this are that we're going to move to an environment where conf- you know asset confiscations become one of the political tools being used and the 1% will you know, increasingly be hit. So I think things like trophy, trophy assets in London and Manhattan and you know, in real estate, for example, are, um, you know, I think if, if I was owning any of those assets, um, I would be liquidating them. I'd more than happy to own you know, apartment blocks which are you know, leased to middle-income um, homes. That, you know, those are... Those are assets that are needed, um, but you know your penthouse apartments in London, Manhattan. I can see those, or even Vancouver, places like that. I can see um, all sorts of taxes coming down on those, possibly even holdings and private equity, um, which again has done pretty well over the last ten years. I wouldn't be surprised to see some new tax regimes coming in there, because the you know quite frankly the the establishment have not been able to tax that because it hasn't become liquid. You know, there's been lease IPOs, massive companies with billions of dollars that have never gone public. 
Um, and so that's going to be, you know, from the confiscatory political class, that's going to be seen as a target. I don't know what's going to come there, but it does concern me. And it is an area that I think is worth, um, worth thinking about. Um, and lastly, before I leave you, in this environment, gold, uh, gold provides non-negative carry. Think about that, non-negative carry. Kind of sounds funny, but an asset which doesn't actually cost you to own it in a world of negative interest rates and a confiscatory world to boot has a real positive yield. Next week, I'm going to be chatting with Brent Johnson from Santiago Capital, who my good friend Raul Powell introduced me to. So I'm really looking forward to that. I invite you to join me on that. And in between, you'll be hearing from me on the blog, both on Wednesday and Friday. Until next time, take care. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.